Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche, and my guest today is Teresa Valerio Parrott. You'll no doubt know Teresa as the principal at TVP Communications, co-host with Aaron Hennessy of the Trusted Voices Podcast, and co-editor of Call to Action for Inside Higher Ed. Previously, Teresa served as Senior Vice President at Widmeyer Communications and Vice President for Simpson Scarborough. She has almost 10 years of service at the University of Colorado, including an officer-level appointment as Assistant Secretary of the University. She has both her undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of Colorado, and later this week will earn her doctoral degree from Southern Methodist University. Congratulations. Thank you. You'll hear today, I'm sure, her passion for higher education, communication, and service. What I think really layers on top of all those and ties her work together that I've noticed at least are joy and hope. So welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk with you. And that just made my heart happy. So maybe I just affirmed what you said. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) See, we're bringing the joy already. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, first question I like to ask everybody. uh, I, I love this as a starter. What's something you tried that didn't work? And what did you learn? So I'm going to give you an easy answer and then a deeper answer. Um, We implemented Instagram for TVP communications. We are the most likely to tell people don't adopt a platform unless you think you can maintain it and it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And of course, we implemented Instagram and quickly realized it was not for us. And it was a really good reminder of how easy it is to get sucked in and think we need this and then to stop and reflect and say, or maybe we don't and to course correct on that. So that's the easy one. I think the deeper answer, and it's one that I still struggle with, is that I still am convinced that um, my alma mater loves me as much as I Mm -hmm. love it. And I'm still convinced that higher education, because it's provided me with so many opportunities, has this ability to reflect the emotion that I have for it. So I'm not going to give up on that one. And that's Mm -hmm. one that um, I continue to learn from. And I think that's something that really binds so many of us that work in this field is that we love what we do. We love Mm -hmm. the institutions that have given us opportunities. Yeah. And it is very hard to uncouple the emotions from, from the place too, especially because we think of the place as static and it's very much not. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a tough lesson. And I'm fine not to have learned it yet because I think yeah. there's something special that comes from making yourself vulnerable for these places that give opportunities to others. Hmm. I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Make yourself <laughs> vulnerable you. to the places. Huh. I like that. <laughs> I'm going I'm to keep thinking about that one. What are some practices you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work then? I am such a fan of brainstorming. And um, as my team knows, we schedule time to brainstorm, which I know for some people is really hard. They like to do it more on the fly or as the moment mm-hmm. happens. I find that I'm doing that as well. But if we don't have specific time on our calendars, it's too easy to just keep going and not to allow yourself to be creative. So I really like to listen do research, and then come to those brainstorming sessions having done a little background work. Because I think people think that brainstorming is just whatever comes to the top of your head, and it is. But I also think there can be an intentionality behind it where you've done homework and research and you want to learn more from the people that you're with. So that takes prep work. And I think that people underestimate the value of a good question to help with a brainstorming session as well. 
Well, you know, for things to pop up, there have to be seeds sown in the first place. I agree. I agree. And I think we spend a lot of time brainstorming with our clients. And I see this with some of our colleague organizations. We need to give ourselves that same kind of freedom to think big and not just have our time only focused on our clients. It has to be both. So obviously you need to get the client work done and do it well, but there is this need to make sure that you're allowing yourselves the same kind of creativity that you're trying to bring from your, from your campus partners. When you're trying to schedule these, do you do them weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly? Do you have a regular cadence like that or just as needed? We do them every other week as a team during our weekly calls that we have. But then there are a couple of us that really like to just sit and ponder. Um, So we have, I would say it's probably about once a month that there are about three or four of us that get together and just start to think about where is higher education going? Where do we fit in that? What does this mean? And we're pretty prolific writers. And so you'll get to see some of that brainstorming come out in op-eds that we write or blog posts that we have or Instagram, or I'm sorry, LinkedIn, not Instagram. We we asked that. (laughs) Um, LinkedIn posts that we might have. So you'll see some of that creativity come out because we're partnering together to think about what can be. This is one that, that I always think about, and maybe I overthink it. When you're doing these brainstorms, well, I guess I'll ask first, how big of a team do you pull together for it? Um, so we have, we're a small team. We have eight people. Okay. So we're um, every other week brainstormings is all of us. And when we have these more concerted focus and longer brainstorming sessions, there's usually three to four and we record those. And the reason that we record them isn't so that anybody is self-conscious and it can be come back to haunt them, but instead it means that we're not spending the time writing and making sure that we got it right. Um, But instead we're just thinking and moving on and then we transcribe them so we can go back and we have those words, but we realize that our speed and our cadence of how we think about those things it, it keeps up with our minds if yeah. we record it and transcribe it. Yeah. So maybe it's a less of a problem there, but maybe, maybe you've seen this before. How do you keep the power dynamics in check where someone might be a younger staff member, a newer person, and maybe that's less of a problem with a team of eight. But I, I've seen this before where there's people with great ideas who don't want to speak up because, well, the, the director had this other direction or the VP was thinking this other thing. I don't want to speak up with my idea because it doesn't fall in line there. Yeah, we implemented Zoom quite a long time before the pandemic. And the reason that we did is for that reason, we are very attuned to nonverbal communications. And so one of the things that I do on Zoom, and I think that most of our team does, again, because we started using it in a very different time and for very different reasons, is that we watch each other's nonverbals pretty closely to see who you can tell has something and and doesn't know if they want to jump in. And to ask if they want to share something or to point a question in their direction, I think is so important. And it's also a reminder to me that you don't have to just have the person who's speaking that pops up on your Zoom screen. And instead, you can tile it so that you can see who looks like they're pondering, who looks like they have something else to say, mm-hmm. and who, who looks like they're not engaged. Because that's also something to think about in the brainstorming session about how to bring them back in. I'm seeing a very different dynamic when you have a room full of communicators uh, right. than, <laughs> than, right. than maybe some other offices. But Well, and it's interesting because I would say most of us are introverts. We have a couple of mm-hmm. extroverts on our team, but most of us are introverts. And I like to joke, I'm an introvert who plays an extrovert at yeah. work. 
(laughs) Um, And so I think that, you know, for many reasons, our observation skills are really high. Don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. We love to talk (laughs) and we love to hear our own voices. But I think we have really honed our skills in making sure that other people feel heard and that we're watching to see how to bring everybody into a conversation as well. I really like that. That's a, that's a different take on it. That I'm always very conscious of this from focus groups, mm-hmm. from small groups. It, it always feels like you have, if you have different levels of hierarchy in the office or whatever, it always feels like the people that talk to most of the talking and the people who are brought in to give their opinion often don't because they feel like there's that power dynamic shift. Right. It sounds like maybe, maybe this is a solution to it or maybe, Maybe it's just the personalities there that really help, but it's, it's much more cohesive than I usually hear. I love to hear myself speak as well. And so I think within our team, we all try to look for that. So Erin Hennessy, who I work with, she is fantastic at looking for that. Um, we have some of our more extroverted team members who look for that in the others. And um, I feel like we kind of keep an eye out for those who are newer to our team. I'm very thankful to say a team that has been together for quite a while. And this past summer, we brought on two new team members. So it is hard for those newer team members to join a team that has been together for at least six years together. That's a really hard environment to come into. And I think we've been working hard to make sure that we are including them. Mm-hmm. And and that goes back to making sure that you listen and research before you come to a brainstorming session, because you're thinking through not just what do you want to talk about, but also how do you get everybody to talk? Mm-hmm. That was quite the rabbit hole, but I really, I really like that. I hope people who listen to this <laughs> can take something back and help make sure everyone has a voice in these types of meetings. Well, diving in, I want to talk more about clarity and communications, mm-hmm. about how we're messaging things and making sure that they're just not just heard, not just said, but understood, internalized. So where do you feel there are opportunities for enrollment marketers to be more clear in their communications with families? I feel this one very personally. I have a daughter who is in college. And Mm -hmm. so I loved the college search process because I let her have her own process and I didn't interfere with that. And everybody who knows me might doubt that, but it's true. You can ask her, (laughs) she'll say the same thing because I wanted her to have her own journey. I loved that process so that I could be secondhand to what she was experiencing and see how we do this well and how we don't. And then in the pandemic, I was basically embedded for an institution working on COVID communications for 18 months. And so I got to be a part of the other side. So I got to see the messages coming from her institution and got to see what I was putting out. And I think there were some really key components that just made sense to me once I stopped and thought about it. Mm -hmm. Simple things like limit word counts, even on the most complex COVID communications, I made sure that nothing was over 400 words, which is not very many if you think about no, it, especially if you're thinking I, about enrollment communications, right? Yeah. And what I would tell everybody is if it's longer than 400, I need a link. You need to have me queue it up and I need to have a link for a number of reasons. In addition to people wanting to get what they need, I also want to be able to measure what it is that they need. So having those links was a way for me to better understand what they were taking advantage of and what they weren't, and if they were getting all the way to the bottom. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we started implementing was a 
TLDR or too long, didn't read. And we would put that at the very top in a box. If you're not going to read this, here is what we want you to get from this. I actually got that from an enrollment management or an enrollment um, communication that my daughter was getting. I thought that was really helpful because you get so many emails. We all do. And especially because students and families get so many emails, let them know if this one is for them from the get go. Don't have it be paragraph six when you're already to 800 words where you finally say, and here's the nugget you need to know. Let them know from the very beginning. And then even in your TLDR, have links so that it jumps down in the email to that part if you want to make sure that they get to that part. So I think that that's important. And then the last thing that I would say, and I get pushback on this. So Will, if you want to push back, do it, Mm -hmm. is that I always say talk first to the students Mm -hmm. and then talk to the families. Because in the end, we're building the relationship with our students, but I see so many institutions for enrollment messages that are talking to the parents. And I understand who's going to help make that ultimate decision, but I want for that relationship to be built with the students first, because that's who's going to be on your campus. I feel like there's two two paths that people take there. Either they speak solely to the student and forget the parents or guardians even exist, Right. Or it's sent to the student, but it's written more for the parent. If that's if that's more what you're thinking, where it's it's not really speaking to the things that matter most to the student. It's written in such a formal way, it would appeal more to the parent. Correct. It feels a little bit like we all have that aunt that's very formal, right? Yep. <laughs> and you can't you can't like slouch a little bit around her. You have to sit up straight. And in yep. some ways, those are the emails that we're we're getting <laughs> and, and, the, and that our colleagues are writing is that you can't relax and be yourself. And if you can't relax and be yourself because that aunt is in the room, then you need to stop and think about how that is telling the student that they're welcomed on your campus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you need that aunt with 20 cats that you're going to remember. You need, you exactly. need that quirkiness. You need that. Right. Sometimes you do. <laughs> and sometimes you need that perspective because it puts everything else into perspective. Yeah. But on a day-to-day basis, it gets really exhausting to be sitting up as straight as you can because that's what's being expected of you. Yeah. When you got to this 400 word, how did that come about? Was that some trial and error, some A-B testing? It actually was. I just pulled a number out of a hat (laughs) (laughs) and we tested it and it started to test really well. And we knew because we were seeing the clicks come through and we were also starting to hear people on campus and those who were reaching out to us were using the language that we were using. So you start to get those little clues that it's working. And Mm -hmm. if it's working, you can tweak around the edges, but kind of lean into what you know is starting to show promise. And I think that's where we see so many people slip away from that. I was very strict about this. So if it was over 400 words and say, it's not going, we're going to hold it another day. I don't care how important you think it is. We're holding it. And I did, which uh, I know didn't always go over well, because (laughs) it's too easy to start adding. And it's too easy Mm -hmm. for people to say just one more thing, one more thing. That tells me First of all, we need to prioritize what the point of this communication is. And second of all, we need to be thinking about how we approach that overload, because it's not just about the words, it's about the amount of content as well. And there's a balance there. And I know for students, as they think about enrollment management messages that they're receiving, all of them are balancing so much and they're thinking through so much and they have such big decisions. 
And sometimes it's just that extra little something that you either want to tell them or you want from them that feels mm-hmm. like too much. Yeah. There's always that, well, this, if we add this one more fact, if we add this one right. more line, then they'll engage. Right. Well, if that's all you need, then why do you have all the rest of this up here? That's exactly it. And that's <laughs> what I would say is, first of all, let's take out the passive verbs. That was an easy mm-hmm. one. But second of all, let's think about what we're telling them we prioritize. Because mm-hmm. the order in which you say this says everything. Often we bury the lead. And what mm-hmm. we really want for them to do comes at the end because we want it to be part of the sign-off. And yeah. it's too late. You might have already lost them or you might have already overwhelmed them. And both of those are misses. I really like that. Now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like there is a lot of writing where it's the introduction, you have the yes. filler body, and then the thesis is at the end, but they've checked out up here at the intro. If they've gotten that far, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that was the nice thing about having that TLDR box is that yeah. there was a place for them to ground themselves and to say, okay, again, this is for me or mm-hmm. it's not. And they mm-hmm. could delete it with knowledge rather than deleting it because they just weren't interested. We didn't yeah. engage them. Boy, that makes me wonder now, are we almost teaching people to write backwards? That you lead I think we with are. The, lead with the thesis, lead with the value. I think so. I think we're, we're, we're telling everybody to build to it. And what I would yeah. say is start with it. Start and then support, right? Or and what, then what, support, what, right. Yeah, I think okay. it's I say what you want to say and then the, build the relationship behind it. Because yeah. people are either going to engage, which means they want that relationship, or they're not. Mm-hmm. And that means... They're not, they're not going to enroll with you. They're not your person. You're not the right mm-hmm. institution. Boy, and that's okay. A homework assignment. Now I'm going to go back and start reviewing some of my writing and see what I'm doing there and, and be more mindful about that. Well, and I think that's important for all of us to think about. We get so used to more is better. I don't know that people read like they used to, not because I think mm-hmm. they can't, but because they don't have time. And because mm-hmm. we are so overloaded by so much At 400 words, it's harder to skim, (laughs) right? Because it's so short, you're going to actually read it. People will engage with it because it is short. But once you get longer, then you are asking people to start skimming. And that means that they're going to pick up the words that jump out to them rather than the words that you want to have jump out to them. When you're saying 400 words, what's your take on aligning that in paragraphs, paragraph, versus bullets or short lines? Is there something that you feel more strongly about structurally? So we did structurally test and that was interesting. Shorter paragraphs were better. So a little bit of white space was a good thing. It may look longer, but people cognitively get that it's not. And they really liked bullets. Our TLDR was bullets, but then even within our messages, we would have bullets. And it's interesting because once you put something into bullets, at least it's my default. And we found on this project, it was the default there too. You start to take words out because our Mm -hmm. minds instinctively want bullets to be shorter. So some of that was really helpful, especially if I had administrators who did not want to cut their language, I would say, this is a really good section for us to make into bullets. And then Mm -hmm. magically (laughs) there would be pixie dust that would come out and suddenly (laughs) it was shorter. So I think there is something just instinctively for us that that's a really easy way to both visually have a call out, but also to make language more succinct. Yeah, boy, we're, we're moving this direction already. I feel like I've, I've jumped down such a rabbit hole. I want to spend another 20, 30 minutes there. But <laughs> what, let's, let's think tactically here. What are some things that both counselors when they're speaking or writing their own individual emails and marketers doing the, the math style, what can they do 
to make sure their message is heard and understood. We talk about this quite a bit, and I think it's about authenticity, right? I, you know, as marketers, we talk about authenticity all the time. And I would say, lead with that. If people can see you through it, and maybe this is why I have that emotional attachment to my alma mater, right? I bought mm-hmm. into the authenticity, but that's yeah. key because what we're asking people to do is exactly that, to build a relationship. And so we need to have a sense of who and what we're talking to and with. And I think that's really important. I think it's important to meet people where they want to be met, to start to think about, go back and look at the inquiries that you receive and whether it's a web form or verbal communications, what are the phrases that they're using? What is the kind of language they're using? How short are their sentences? And start to mirror that back to them because how they're speaking to you is how they're processing. And we like to have these really long sentences with you know, 50 cent words and semicolons and when we're talking with people, we don't talk like that. So yeah. sometimes it makes more sense to read it out loud and say, does this feel like how we want to engage with people? Make sure that we're meeting them where they are and how they process. And I think it's important for us to move away from an insider's club with language. What I mean by that is based on the demographic cliff and based on where we're seeing enrollment trends, we are going to need more returners to complete. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need more first-gen students. And we're going to need more of those that we don't currently think of as our traditional students. And part of why I think some haven't engaged with us is that they don't know the rules. They don't know the language. They don't have the Mm -hmm. tricks and the tips to navigate through this. And so we need to remember that there is an insider's club. Those of us who have children and we went to college and now we have children and we're and we're having them apply, we get it and we know what some of these things are. Whether it's a bursar or how to navigate a, a bookstore. Like I remember the first time I walked into a bookstore and I had my course schedule and I was looking at that and I was looking at how the books were arranged. It was an entirely new world that some people got because they had someone to help them navigate through it. There's a whole bunch that goes into all of this. And students see that when they come for campus visits and they hear it with how we talk to them and we write to them. And we need to be thinking about what that insider's club language sounds in and how it's used, whether we realize it or not. And then the last thing I would say is collect and listen to feedback. I'm such a big fan of feedback loops. People are willing to tell you what they think. The reality Mm -hmm. is we often don't ask them. And if we do ask them, we don't do anything with it. Exactly. I, I see a lot of collection. I don't see a lot of action. Yes. Yes. And part of that is because sometimes we hear what we don't want to hear yep. or it's going to take work. Yeah. Or we, or we just write it off because, oh, right. well, they, that was just a one-off thing. But if one person says it, there's probably more than one person thinking it. And that's an opportunity for us to listen more. Yeah. yeah. And do something with it. The, exactly. When you say authenticity. What does that mean to you? I'll give you a personal example. Okay. Because I was able to experience this with my daughter. She would get these amazing enrollment pieces in the mail. And what a student, at least what she was trying to do is to say to herself, can I see me in these pictures, in how they describe mm-hmm. the opportunities, in the way that they say people come together, in, you know, can I imagine myself sitting in that Adirondack chair <laughs> in mm-hmm. that green space, whatever it was. I had the great fortune of traveling to a number of campuses. And so I would just bring her along some that she was very interested in and some that she wasn't. And she would normally have their marketing materials. Mm -hmm. And 
one of her favorite debriefs with me is if there was a match or a disconnect between how they described themselves and what the experience was. And I think we do this quite a bit. We write and we photograph and we talk about and we give examples of what we think everybody wants from our campus, not necessarily what they will get from our campus. And I know from visiting so many campuses, amazing things are happening at every single one of them. And it's always fascinating to me that oftentimes those on campus can't see their sparkle, but those of us who visit can, and we can point it out. So they're trying to share somebody else's sparkle or what they think people will want to have sparkle. And they're undermining and they are devaluing all of the ways in which they are amazing. So that's what I'm saying about authenticity. What is Mm -hmm. it that you really are good at? What is it that students really will experience? How is it that you're talking about this? Because what I want someone to do is we've all seen in, you know, commercials or sci-fi movies or whatever, where somebody like walks through a screen. And that's what I want them to do is to be able to walk through that enrollment management piece and walk onto your campus and to have the same experience from both of those. Yeah. There's a lot of aspiration uh, that you see. In there the is. And, and there's and there's a lot of mimicry. Mm-hmm. I think that that's fascinating as well. It was it was interesting to me to hear my daughter go through those. And again, she's my daughter and I'm in Marcom for higher ed. So she approached yeah. this in much different ways. She could tell when an institution was trying to level up, they thought, to a different institution. Mm. Because it doesn't feel like it's comfortable. That's really interesting that, that she caught on to that. That would be that, yeah. well, we want to talk and sound like our competitor who we think is this other thing. Right. See, students catch on to it. They right? are so much smarter than we realize. And even mm-hmm. if you think most of them, right, they open it, they look at it, and they toss it away. But they are still catching on to different little tidbits and they're still reading some of the language and Hmm. they're still seeing whether or not it's personalized and how I think that matters. Absolutely. I mean, they want something that speaks to them that makes sense. It's not just a promotional guide, but something that's relevant to them. Yes. Find it funny too. You you do the debriefs with your daughter too from the, I, I'm familiar with that from the podcast side. Angela and I have started doing that as a, as a process of when we are, listening and reading things we're each going to have different perspectives and so that's been very helpful i'm seeing it it's just rubbing off everywhere now <laughs> i agree and we even had a spreadsheet we had different tabs so that she could put her her thoughts and i could put my thoughts and i just thought it was it was such a fun experience for the two of us to go through together so when we have all these authentic and relevant materials where do you think the balance should be between sort of the factual and the emotional when it comes to ensuring this clarity So what I would say is I think for families, they don't see it as a balance. They don't see it as a difference. They just are experiencing it. And that's important for all of us to remember. And I would say that if there is any emotion that needs to be addressed, whether it's a positive piece or it's a reactive piece, address that first and then say what you want to say. Because what you're doing is you're addressing what they need and then you're addressing what you need. And it should always lead with what they need first. And, mm-hmm. and if you lead with what you want to tell them rather than what they are feeling in an acknowledgement of that, they'll remember because you haven't listened and heard. And that goes back to the need for feedback loops and incorporating learnings from all of what you've already experienced. Because if you're able to then incorporate that addressing of emotion and then the layering in of the factual, it shows that you listened. 
I also like to say, even if it's a written piece, even if it's a print piece, make it feel like it's a conversation because so often it is us telling them. And if Mm -hmm. it feels, and there can even be the most serious of institutions that can have a piece that feels like a conversation that isn't about the gravitas of the institution. It's about the building of the relationship and admissions processes are focused on creating relationships. So Mm -hmm. make sure that that relationship is also handed off to someone else at some point too, because I hear from students who have this amazing experience with all of the enrollment managers that you work with, all of those admissions team members, and they feel like they are not just a number. They feel like they matter. They feel like they've been recognized and appreciated. And then they come to campus and that's the last time they feel all of those things. Hmm. So I always like to encourage that as you're thinking about those communications, it needs to have the and at the end of it, right? And this is an ongoing and continuing relationship. Yeah. So you, you really need not just comp flows, but experiences that are sort of that onboarding, right? right. Transition from one stage to the other. Right. There are so many different places across the campus where we kind of, we pick up and then we drop off and we assume mm-hmm. that somebody else is going to pick up and that may or may not happen. But again, the admissions process is so personal, so personal. Mm-hmm. And we set that expectation that this relationship that we've now built is going to continue that way. And sometimes it doesn't. And I think most often that's picked up by student affairs. And as we know, they have a lot on their plates right now. So they may or may not be able to catch everybody. When, when we're talking about addressing emotions, I know there's always this, there's a hesitation and a fear to address things like financial aid that can have very strong emotions. Like, well, we don't want to address anything that may have a negative emotion, but that feels so missed. That, mm-hmm. You know, if you can, if you can address the fears first, am I thinking about that in the right way that you address the fears first Yes, and then it doesn't get in the way of the excitement? I completely agree because we've mm-hmm. both heard and experienced those students who get to the end and they're, mm-hmm. they say, this is the school for me. I have picked yep. the one I have found my fit. I feel seen. I feel appreciated. Mm-hmm. I'm going to succeed. And then they get their financial aid packaging and, and their hopes and dreams are dashed. And then they're going to go with what they feel is their second choice, which may have, I'm sure is a fantastic choice for them as well, or they may not go. Um, And I think there are a lot of students like that as well. Right. And so we need to address that up front. What we're telling you, these opportunities that we're selling to you, Mm because we are selling them, these opportunities that we're selling, they have a price tag and we can work with you and we're happy to give you some options and some, and some different ideas, but we want to be clear up front about what it is that we're talking about. And I don't think that that's anything other than genuine. I think people think, well, we're going to end a relationship there. I don't know, test it, because I think more families are going to appreciate that. And I think for a lot of institutions, they're convinced that it's more expensive than it actually is for a number of our of our campuses. Mm-hmm. And for other families, they have no idea how expensive it really is once you start adding housing and fees and, and, and. And it very quickly gets to a place where it feels scary. So if you address that scary, but then you also pair that with here are the ways that we can try to help and hopefully get you to a not scary point, then I think that you can start to talk about some of those other factual items. Because if you want to talk about factual and that's underlying everything, they're not going to have the ability to engage with you in the way that you want to be engaged. Another bit I want your take on, I always recommend that things should sound like and read like a dialogue, not a monologue. 
and, yes. and you were getting at that of building a relationship, having the conversation. What does that look like in an email? What does that look like where, where it can often, it feels more like we're writing on a billboard or we're sending right. it out. And even though you can respond so often, it's not written as something that would elicit a response. And I think that goes back to some of the little tips and tricks I was talking about earlier. Shorten the length of your sentences, shorten the length of your paragraphs, because it gives people the time and ability to process. And it feels more like how we talk to each other. But instead, I think I do this. I think with my fingers while I type. And most of what I type, I am, uh, you know, either writing a paper for that degree that I'm about to get, or I'm thinking about something that is more formal. And I need to stop and remember what the audience and the purpose is. And that's where I go back and I start to take out some of that pomp and circumstance, right? Let them get that once they Mm -hmm. get to campus. But I think there there are a number of ways for people to think about that. There are add-ins that you can put into Word, um, so downloadable add-ins that will tell you what reading level you're writing at. That's Mm -hmm. a really important one. I usually like to encourage people to write at about the 10th grade reading level. And again, not because I don't think that people are smart, It's because we skim. And so if you're skimming, a 10th grade reading level will get you what you need to know. But we don't usually write at that in higher education. And if we're writing at something that feels collegiate, we need to remember we're still talking to high schoolers, right? And and not not just high schoolers, but some of them are high schoolers. Some of them are not used to, yeah, they're out of the practice of some of the ways in which we think our language should be structured. So that really moves it quickly away from a conversation. Do you have any tips to help counselors ask questions of students to help them open up, feel more comfortable engaging in the search process? And I I get to this because I think you just had a masterclass at AMA Higher Ed last fall and leading a conversation, asking questions, getting that engagement on stage. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. If I think back to where my daughter was, I'm going to kind of use like an an up analogy. I feel like all of her anxieties just kept filling a balloon and a balloon and a balloon and a balloon. And very quickly, she had this massive number of balloons that she was carrying. So you can either think about it as that person, like when you go to Disneyland or Disney World and they're holding all of those balloons that, and you know, selling them or an up that there were so many balloons, it was able to lift the house, right? Mm-hmm. All of those balloons were filled with anxiety, worry, stress. And I like to think of those who are in admissions as having the ability to pop those anxiety-filled balloons because you have resources and you have the ability to help cut through some of that stress. Some of those stresses were real and some of those were not knowing. And some of those were just her mind getting away from her because it's such a stressful period. And so you have those pins start to see what's in those balloons and start to pop them and bring them back down to where you are rather than having them lift up and float away from you. And then I also think there's this important reminder that we should be celebrating with students and celebrating with their families because these are celebratory moments. And I think most of the celebratory language only goes in that one email if you get in. (laughs) And then we forget that there's a celebration tied to this. And I think that it should be a celebration throughout. 
congratulations on this step. Congratulations for looking into what might be an option for you. Congratulations on filling out your application and moving forward, right? It doesn't just have to be that one moment that's a yes or a no. There are so many different moments along this path that should be celebrated. And I don't know as a society that we do that enough. My team and also my my cohort for my doctoral program tease me because I like to say that everything should have confetti. We, we miss the confetti <laughs> moments in life, yeah. right? And I'm a serious person. I take things seriously too. But there are small pieces that we just don't allow ourselves to celebrate because we're too busy moving on to the next thing. That's interesting you bring that up. I think about... I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old. So there's a lot of celebrating. Hey, you learned this skill. Hey, you did that. Right. And I and wonder where like that stops. And it just goes away. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not yeah. sure what that is, but I hope that you keep that. We mm-hmm. talk in our household. I always, before I got to confetti, I was with sprinkles, right? I said, everything should have sprinkles on top. Yeah. And if you think about what makes a kid light up, ice cream makes mm-hmm. them light up, but really saying ice cream and sprinkles makes them light oh, up. Yeah. And I think you're right. We shift over time away from having those moments to appreciate what we have and what's there. And instead we're already looking to what comes next. And so I think reminding people to celebrate those moments is just critically important. How do we get to a celebratory emails, text messages, calls, what, whatever that I guess doesn't ring hollow. That doesn't feel like just a mass email that says congratulations, but instead is really getting at our excitement for the students because I've, I've been there as the counselor who's super excited for the students. I've seen so many counselors. I just wonder, is it being perceived that way on the other end? I think that all goes back to authenticity, though, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I just saw Jeff Solingo a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about this because my heart has broken for students when I see a student with their family and I ask the student, what are your plans next year? Because I don't Mm -hmm. say, where are you going to college? That makes a huge assumption, right? Like, what are your plans next year? And they're usually mom or dad steps in and says, well, they're only going to, and then they list an institution and you can just see the student crestfallen. And, and it might be that they're going wow. to a community college. It might be that they're going to, I mean, pick an institution. Yeah. You just missed an opportunity to congratulate your child on taking those steps and moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that tells them how much you value where they are right then. And so he and I were talking about that because I turned back to the students and I say, congratulations, that's amazing. What are you thinking about studying, doing, whatever it might be? Because I want to reframe that as a positive. I think that we have created such a pecking order of what is important and what success looks like that we're forgetting that there are many different ways to get there and for people to experience that. But there's this want of something else sometimes. And I think we need to be encouraging the families also to be participating in those celebrations. Even if a student applies to an institution for someone who might be listening and they don't get in, whatever happens, wherever that student goes, that still needs to be acknowledged and celebrated because they're putting themselves out there. And where they go, that is something that is an accomplishment as well. They're doing something that matters to them no matter what. It almost, as you're saying this, it it almost feels like we feel like we need to beat something down to add value to something else. Agreed. Well, that's That's not good enough to add more value to that next. But But have you you experienced and seen that too, right? Because I I have countless examples of this where, and I almost feel as if 
the parent feels like they're almost like, you know, excusing that the child didn't get into something better or doing something differently. And, Mm -hmm. and I want to hear from the student because usually the student is ready to tell me and they're about to tell me and you can tell that they're excited about it. And then they're crestfallen. And that I think is something that we need to be thinking about as parents and also as, as those of us in the industry, how are we reinforcing and setting this up so that that's the reaction that we're getting out of families? Boy, that is. We need more confetti. Well, that's the answer. We do. We do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and that's, that is really interesting. We, now I really wonder when does the celebration stop? Like I, I hope it doesn't. Yeah. I honestly hope that it doesn't. But we know because, that it does, right? Somewhere right? in between, I, right. at least I know somewhere between six and 18 for a lot of people. Right. Hmm. Or maybe not. Maybe I'm yeah. older than 18 and still celebrating with the sprinkles and the confetti. Yeah. Well, good. I, I hope that they, that, that continues and, and we don't ever lose that. And you're going to have some confetti pretty soon here with your graduation. So congratulations again. Thank you. I was super excited to go back. I studied higher education um, mm-hmm. because I love it so much. I wanted to know more and I wanted to be able to have conversations with colleagues across multiple areas on a campus and to better understand the challenges that they face. So it was an opportunity for me to, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before, collect and listen. Well, I want to thank you so much for the time today. You've collected a lot of great thoughts and everyone's out there listening. So we're tying it back together here. <laughs> I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate the conversation. It's, it's been wonderful. I agree. Thank you so very much. Yeah. Well, have safe travels and, and have a wonderful graduation. Thank you. Thank you.